So I'd like to read just the portion that we're going to be considering today and uh, bring us up to speed as to where we are in the context of the story of the martyrdom of Stephen, the witness of Stephen. We'll begin reading there in verse 17 and down through verse 43. Acts chapter 7, verse 17, down through verse 43. The scripture says, But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and their hearts turned, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. 
I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts as we take time to go through this defense of Stephen, I just want to remind us of the bigger context, what we're looking at. Acts chapter 7 is a defense that Stephen is making before the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel. The reason he's having to make the defense is in chapter 6, he was accused of blasphemy against God, of blasphemy against Moses, he was accused of speaking against the law and against the temple. And as, he, as he's been accused of these things, he is given opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin with the high priest saying at the beginning of the chapter, are these things so? Well, the assumption is that based on the accusations, he has done these things, but he has an opportunity to defend himself. And as he defends himself, I just want to briefly give the outline of what is taking place in chapter 7. We've covered some of this already, but I hope it'll kind of posture us today for the section in which we are in. In chapter 7 and verse 2, you see the name Abraham. But it's not just about Abraham. It's the God of glory appearing to our father Abraham. Stephen has been accused of blasphemy against God in his very opening statement. He's attributing glory to God, glory to God who keeps his promises and entered into a covenant relationship to Abraham completely outside of the land of Israel. And of course, he related to him in the land as well, but he had not yet given him the land. He was going to give it to him, to his descendants after him. But the point, one of the points that Stephen is making throughout the speech is that God is relating to people outside of the land of Israel. His presence is with his people wherever they are. And that becomes even more clear as he goes into the life of Joseph following Abraham and the patriarchs. In verse 11 and the following verses here, as it's speaking about Joseph all the way to the death of Joseph and his brothers, there's a focus on the faithfulness of God to the nation. And of course, his presence with Joseph outside of Israel in Egypt. And God is with his people even when they're in Egypt. And then as he begins in verse 17 to describe, then we're going to consider this passage more carefully, but with Moses, where does God first relate to Moses? Well, of course, God is involved in all of our life, but where did God appear to him? It was in the backside of the desert. It was at Mount Sinai. It was in a burning bush in the wilderness. So God's presence is not limited to a location. Remember, he's God of all the earth, and as he relates to his people, wherever they are, he's present with them. And so there's a focus on God's calling of Moses, his gifting of Moses as a deliverer, as a ruler, as the judge of his people. And then there's also an emphasis on the rejection of Moses. So though Moses was chosen by God, he's rejected initially by the people. And not just initially, he's rejected more than once. And that seems to be an emphasis within <clears throat> excuse me, this section 
that we'll be considering. And uh, I'm going to wait to focus on that until we till we get to that point. In addition to this focus on Moses, down through verse, you might say, verse 39, 40, there then is a brief focus on the nation and its idolatry. Yes, it was a repudiation of Moses, but it was also really a rejection of God. It was idolatry that they started worshiping other gods. So the rejection of Moses was not just a rejection of the man. It was a rejection of the God for whom he was speaking. And then the last section of Stephen's defense focuses on the inadequacy of the temple to house the Most High God. Stephen's been accused of speaking against the temple. And of course, the church worshipped there at the temple site. There were miracles done at the temple site. There's nothing wrong with the location, but God is not limited to that location. In fact, how could he be? If heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. But as he's preaching to this people, there was sort of, if I could use the word, temple olatry, where they're worshiping the temple site itself and valuing it more than they should be. And following that focus on the inadequacy of the temple to house the Most High God, that's from verses 44 down through 50, then there is a charge leveled by Stephen against the Sanhedrin of persistent rebellion of the nation throughout its history, culminating in its rebellion against the righteous one. And you notice that in verse 52, where he speaks of Christ as the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So there's a sense in which Stephen's speech here is amplifying previous charges that Peter and the other apostles had made that this group of people, the leadership of Israel, was responsible for the death of Christ. And of course they were. But it's the death of Christ, the death of the righteous one, the death of the coming one, as we read in Matthew chapter 11 today. This is the expected one. This is the Messiah. They've killed their king. And of course they can't handle that. And so following Stephen's defense, There's, of course, anger and Stephen's vision of the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and they're martyring him, putting him to death by stoning him. We're introduced at the end of the chapter both to Saul and Stephen's prayers for Saul as he's dying. So we're in the presence here as we look at this passage of a martyr. It's the last speech and defense of a martyr. He is on trial for his life. The charges that were leveled against him, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, against the law, against the temple, while the law and the temple and Moses would not have been the same level, the charge of blasphemy against God was a capital offense. He could be stoned. And of course, that's the conclusion they came to because of their unbelief. So this man is on trial for his life, and he is arguing, and really, as I mentioned throughout the first couple of portions here, that God is present not 
only in the land of Israel, not only at the temple site, but God throughout their history has been with his people wherever they have been. With Abraham, before he ever left Mesopotamia, with Joseph, while he was in Egypt. And in verse 17, we pick up in the context here, uh, the timing of God's promise, which he had made to Abraham. So there's a link in verse 17 to what God had said and is even recorded earlier in Stephen's speech that God had promised something and that promise is approaching. What is the promise? Well, we'd have to go back to the first part of the speech and then based on that, go back to the Old Testament to Genesis 15 to see that God had promised that his people would become enslaved and that as they became enslaved, eventually after hundreds of years that they would be released. The bondage would be over, that he would judge the nation in which they were held bondage. That's the promise that's being spoken of. So in verse 17, as Stephen is drawing attention to that promise, and then eventually the fulfillment of that promise, he's actually preaching by implication the faithfulness of God, the truthfulness of God. Stephen believed in a glorious God, a God who is truthful, a God who is faithful, a covenant God who keeps his promises. And as he says in verse 17, as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, it's in the context of this telling of the story that he's giving weight to and emphasis to that this isn't just the way things happened without God being in control. It was God who made the promise, and he's going to bring these things about. And so verses 17 through 19 is the historical context of Moses' ministry, the beginning of his ministry. What's the historical context? What's the timing? It's that time. It's the time of the promise, which is getting closer. And notice it's not only that they're going to be released from bondage, but there's something else in verse 17 that is in keeping with the promises of God. What had God promised to Abraham? Not only that his descendants would become enslaved in a land, not only that he would judge that land, and judge, as we see in Exodus, judge its gods, but it's also that he would multiply Abraham's descendants. Something we might just pass over as an extraneous detail is actually another testimony to the faithfulness of God. Look at the end of verse 17. It says the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. The very same scene where the Lord makes the promise regarding the descendants of Abraham, he's making the promise that his descendants are going to multiply. He took him outside. He said, look at the stars. This is how many your descendants will be. And so the God that Stephen is preaching is a faithful God, a truthful God, a God who keeps his promises. And down to the detail here, Stephen is referencing the faithfulness of God as he even speaks about the increase and multiplication of the people. Remember, so numerous that the Egyptians were afraid that they would become more numerous than them and that they would overtake the nation. That was the fear of the people and certainly the Pharaoh during that time. 
And then in verse 18, as we continue to consider the historical context of Moses' ministry, there's now another king, another pharaoh, over Egypt who doesn't know anything about Joseph. And from a human perspective, you might ask the question, how could anybody forget Joseph? We have the record of scripture, but if we understand what Joseph did for the land of Egypt and indeed for the world during that time, how could you forget this king? Or at least second in command, who was so instrumental in saving the world in the time of famine? How could you forget him? But that's what happened, and in the providence of God, that king who arose knew nothing about Joseph. It is all too easy, isn't it, to forget things that have been done in the past, even good things, even good people. And that's what's taking place here, the history of the nation of Egypt. There was no recollection of this one Joseph who, for a period of time, there was really, other than Pharaoh, no one higher than him, and he was instrumental both in foretelling the famine and then foretelling the time of plenty prior to the famine and then administrating things in such a way that people were rescued. But people had just forgotten. And of course, in the providence of God, not only did they forget Joseph, they put the people under bondage. Psalm 105 says, he turned their heart to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. So this is a circumstance in which, of course, God is allowing things to be forgotten and bringing things about according to his promises. Verse 19 elaborates on that Pharaoh. It says that it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Of course, this leads us to Moses directly because it's in that particular context of that command to expose the children, to cast them into the Nile River, that Moses is born. When we look at the providential circumstances of the birth of Moses and God's plan for Moses, and if I could just draw attention again to Stephen, remember Stephen's making this speech, and as Stephen is telling this story, he is not only rooting it in the history back in Genesis and the promises to Abraham, but he's following very closely with the Exodus narrative. And he's, you might say, zooming in on a scene that Exodus zooms in on, giving us details about the birth of Moses and that time period in which, notice verse 20, what it says. It says, he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. So there's a time in which, of course, he's hidden. But, and, and I, I'll, I'll draw attention, too, to what, what Stephen says there, middle of the verse. It says, and he was lovely in the sight of God. That's actually what Exodus says. Uh, Moses wrote Exodus, so he's actually writing about his birth and what he was like. It's kind of like he's saying, I was a beautiful baby. But not just beautiful in a sense, and, and the word could be handsome, something you know, reflecting his physical characteristics. But when you think about his parents, and his parents receive this gift of a little boy from God, 
Moses is just recognizing that there was a valuing of Moses's life. Uh, one person said it this way, Moses' parents accepted this beautiful child as a gift from God, and then and therefore they were not minded to abandon him. It's just telling us that like any child is valued as a child given by God, Moses was too. And it was for that reason, they did not want to expose him to death. They didn't want to put him in the Nile. And even if they did, they would want to preserve his life. And so, you know, the story of the Ark of Bulrushes, and he was placed there in a safe place, and Miriam's watching, and then the daughter of Pharaoh comes down. And it's the daughter of Pharaoh who sees him, hears him. And it's the daughter of Pharaoh who then wants to take him, but Miriam offers a nurse for Moses. And then that wonderful part of the story where Jacobet gets to have Moses for a little while longer. And then he's taken into Pharaoh. So these are the providential circumstances following the Exodus narrative. Remember, Stephen is talking to scribes. He's talking to the high priest. He's talking to other priests those who well knew the scripture, but you can see his detail focused on the scripture, even as he gives and relates this story. Now Pharaoh's daughter has him. And as he grows up, verse 22 says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And, and you might say as a result of, is the way I would take this, he was a man of power in words and deeds. He was a man of importance growing up in the household of or the palace, you could say. Uh, he is, his word means something to the people. And you might see a contrast in what is said there and what Moses says of himself later on, where he says, I'm not eloquent, but I don't think there's any contradiction. We're just talking about Moses and his importance within the culture as he grew up within the palace. He's educated. And of all the Hebrew Boys, I don't know who else survived, but Moses survived that time of persecution, and he's alive, and he's actually protected and preserved for the purpose of God. These are the providential circumstances in Moses' life. And then we have a turning point, or at least a significant event in verse 23. And this is another time in which Stephen kind of zooms in on a circumstance we might not give as much attention to, but Moses did when he wrote it. And as Stephen has been accused of speaking against the law, he's giving very careful attention to the law as he details Moses' life, the very record of these circumstances. You go back to Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and we're not going to do that for the sake of time, but if you wanted to compare this passage, which would with what Moses writes in Exodus 1 and 2, Stephen's just slowly moving through the context. And in a story which we might not give that much attention to, Stephen zooms in on. And he actually relates it to the bigger picture of what's taking place during this day. What's the story? Well, the story is when Moses is 40 and an event that happens that results in his departure from the land of Egypt. Verse 23, when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brother, brethren, the sons of Israel. The implication is Moses knew who he was, knew he was a Hebrew, knew he was not technically an Egyptian. At least he wasn't a son literally of Pharaoh's daughter. He was connected to this group of people. 
And in verse 24, it says, when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptians. So he's actually on the side of his people as he observes this taking place. He's not going to let an Egyptian just abuse someone who's literally related to him. This nation within a nation was a family. Moses is a part of that family. This is blood. This is someone who's related to him, who's being mistreated by, of course, the oppressive Egyptians. Now, why did why did he do this? Look at verse 25. Why, why, why is Moses going out to visit them, and what is he doing here? Verse 25, it says, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Now, we're getting some insight into the mind of Moses here, that I don't believe there's a verse, if you were to go back to the Old Testament and look at the detail that Moses gives, that says exactly what Stephen says. I don't believe we need that to understand what Moses was thinking. But based on what Stephen is saying, Moses goes out to visit his brethren, and he actually thinks that he's the one to deliver them out of this circumstance. Well, why would they need deliverance? Well, yes, there's oppression. But don't forget, there's also the promise of God back to Abraham that the nation would be enslaved, that eventually they're going to be released from that bondage. And Moses thinks, according to Stephen here, that in his circumstance, historically, his position in the palace, the learning that he had, his power in words and deeds, that somehow God is going to use him to deliver his people. That's what Stephen is saying. But that is not received on the part of the people. That's not received by the children of Israel at this time in their history. And obviously it's not God's time yet. It's 40 years down the line if we look at the timeline of Moses. So this is 40 years prior to Moses' re-entry. It's during that period of time when he's about 40 years old that he comes and thinks that he's going he's gonna to accomplish what God said that was going to be accomplished, that the nation would be delivered, that they would be taken back into the promised land. But initially... Moses, as he pursues this course of action, is rejected. He's not accepted as the leader. He's not regarded by his brethren to be the one to lead them out, at least not now. How does Stephen know that? Well, he takes that from this conversation that happens on the day that Moses, or the day after the Moses killed the man. Look at verse 26. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to, tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Now think about that question. Think about the longer-term picture of Moses' life. Now, the answer, if you look at the big picture of Moses' life, is that God did. He's exercising some level of authority, or at least 
mediation as he enters into this relationship with these two that are fighting. And that's why they ask the question, who made you a ruler and judge over us? The implication is you don't have the right to do this. Now, you might say, well, that's not why he left, but I want you to notice uh, why he left Egypt. But look at the next couple of verses. They first asked that question, you made, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? Now, what is, what is known about Moses based on that question? It's known that he has killed an Egyptian. Read back in Exodus, and you realize that Pharaoh was going to kill Moses because of what he did. But when Stephen draws attention to this conversation and then makes a following comment, notice what he says in verse 29. At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. Now, you might say, well, he, he, he's leaving because he's fearful. Uh, I don't believe that's the whole story. And in light of Stephen's later argument, it's not the full story. It's not only his fear of being rejected. It's also that context of, uh, excuse me, his fear of, of, of being uh, executed for his murder. It's also his, his fear that he's been rejected by the people, that they don't consider him somebody who, who could lead them. In other words, when Stephen says in verse 29, at this remark, it's not only the thought of his murdering this person, it's also their rejection of him as a leader. And it's at that remark that he flees. Now, I would say Exodus gives more attention to the fear that Moses had because of the fact that he killed someone and was known. But in that very context, there's also a rejection of his leadership of them. In other words, they're, they're not accepting that he would be some kind of a ruler over them. Stephen's going to make more of that later. But what's the point? Why, why is Stephen giving this portion of, the, of Moses' life? Well, again, I would say you've got some very careful attention to Exodus, to the law. The way that he's handling the law shows the people that he's speaking to that he's not dismissive of the law, that he regards the law to be true, that he regards this, this uh, narrative about Moses to be what really happened, and he's paying attention to details, you might say, that few of them had ever even really thought about. But in the circumstances that Stephen is in and what he's having to defend himself on, he's giving attention to what God revealed and why God revealed that conversation and that element of the conversation. Because you notice down in verse 34, it's not the statement about, do you, you do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday. It's who made you a ruler and a judge that again is on Stephen's mind. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's that statement that Stephen is drawing attention to. That was the initial rejection of Moses from just a couple people who were fighting. But Stephen is going to elaborate on that as he continues to describe how the children of Israel treated Moses as their leader. Part of Stephen's point here is that Moses was rejected initially. 
as the leader of his people. And the reality, as you look through the Old and New Testament, is that God's messengers to his people are often rejected. They're not welcome with open arms. They often get a stiff arm or the silent treatment. Or sometimes they're avoided. Sometimes mistreated or persecuted. Or even as Stephen is here about to be martyred, they're martyred. And I would certainly make an application for those who enter into gospel ministry and preach the gospel. You really shouldn't enter gospel ministry if you can't endure being rejected. It's part of what it means to actually follow Christ. And there's there's blessing in it, according to Christ. But there's just the reality of how you feel when you are rejected and what you do when you're rejected. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. For the sake of the Son of Man, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the, in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. I saw that word ostracize and I was reminded I was listening to a history of Athens and this teacher, as he was talking about the history of Athens, was talking about a man named Themistocles, who was ostracized in a political sense. Being ostracized meant that for whatever reason, if you gained too much power or favor within the society and it was deemed you were deemed to be a political threat, they could vote to ostracize you, which would mean that for 10 years you would have to leave and be exiled somewhere. So putting out of a person, out of the society, so that that favor can disappear, presumably, and the power, social power, would be diminished. And that was an official act of the government. But obviously there would be steps before that. And in any culture, there is an ostracizing or there's a putting away of someone for whatever reason, just a diminishing of what they say. A diminishing, in addition to what they say, a diminishing of who they stand for. And you can expect, Christian, that that will happen to you if you try to live like Jesus Christ and speak for Jesus Christ. There will, of course, be those who listen because God is at work. But there will also be those who reject. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So we have to, when we stand for Jesus or we're following Jesus, we're speaking for Jesus, we have to remember that we could be treated like Jesus was. And of course, Stephen is being treated like Jesus was. He's about to be martyred, put to death like Jesus was. 
But I'm just saying by way of application, rejection is part of what we experience in this sinful world when it comes to speaking for standing for God. Paul said to the Corinthians, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And that's a man who used to have, in the eyes of people, esteem. He used to be, he, remember, he was rising in importance in Judaism, according to Galatians. He was, he was getting more stature, but then he turned to Christ, and what happened? He's the scum of the earth. And that's why anyone who is serving Christ and following Christ, especially as a person who speaks for Christ, needs to have God's help. That's why Paul told Timothy, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There are hard things in serving Christ. Moses, remember, chose this. It was his purpose to identify with God's people, to suffer, as Hebrew says, that reproach, the reproach of Christ. And remember that even if you are reproached, even if you are rejected, even if you are reviled or slandered or treated as the scum of the earth, God has his eye on his people. They are his children. You will have and already do possess eternal life and a relationship with the God of heaven. There is a reward for following Christ. But there's the reality of how you're treated as a representative of Christ. Now, again, Stephen is describing that initial rejection, but in verse 30, there's now the call of God that comes to Moses because of God's tender compassion on his people. You could also say his covenant with his people. Look at verse 30. So we're moving from this scene of the initial rejection of Moses in that circumstance there with those two individuals. We're moving past, as he's described, the context of Moses' ministry. And now, again, zooming in on the call of Moses. This is a, a moment, you might say, in time when Moses, is he's just with his sheep in the desert, and suddenly he beholds a burning bush. But it's not being consumed. It's just on fire. And I don't know that it would be a strange thing to see something on fire in the wilderness where it's so hot, you might have brush fires. But this is on fire, and it's not being consumed. And we know that it's more than just a fire. The statement in Exodus is consistent here. It's an angel or a messenger. Look at verse 30. After 40 years had passed, so he's about 80. It says, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. That's logical. 
as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. So we have a messenger who is appearing to him, and when he comes to look more closely, notice again, the end of verse 31, it says, there came the voice of the Lord. So I think one of the questions we have, and if you look through the passage in Genesis or Exodus, rather, Exodus chapter 3, you have a question, is who is this? Let's look back there for a moment. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Who is this? Verse 3. Let's start in verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord, that's Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to look, God, that's Elohim, called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now, the thing that might trip us up is in verse 2, that word that's translated angel. Because you have course, angels in scripture created finite beings. Of course, there are evil angels, but there's also good angels. We know that God commands angels, that they serve him, that they obey him. But in the context here, I don't believe you can conclude that the one who is appearing is merely a finite angelic messenger, that there's something else going on here. And part of the reason I say that, I'm not trying to contradict what the scripture says. What I would just say is that word angel in both Greek and Hebrew doesn't connote, doesn't indicate the nature of the person. I'll just give an illustration in the New Testament. If you saw said, uh, you know, the angels that come with Christ, the word that's used to describe there the 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 beings in heaven that come with Christ at his coming, you're talking about these finite, powerful, spiritual beings that come to serve Christ and whatever his purpose and will is. Those are angels. And yet that same word is used to describe the individuals who went from John the Baptist to go speak to Jesus about whether or not he was the Messiah. Luke chapter 7 It's the word messengers, it's translated messengers, but it's the same Greek word as the word angels. So in one case, it's a human being. In another case, it's this, as we think about angels, this finite spirit who serves God at his will. That same word angel in James chapter 2 speaks about the people who came to Rahab at Jericho. They were angeloi, or they were messengers. They were angels, but they weren't finite spirits. They're just men, but the same word is used. 
If we went back to the Old Testament, I'll just give one passage, Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob comes back into the land. And it says the angels of God met him and he named the place Maenaim because there were two camps. There was a camp of angels and there was his camp. Why two camps? Because God had a camp there. The angels were there. Jacob was there. These are the messengers of God. The Malachim is the Hebrew word. They're finite spiritual beings. But later in the chapter, Jacob sends Malachim to Esau. So Jacob sends messengers to Esau. Same word. In the same chapter, human beings, angelic spirits. Okay, now, I hope that's not confusing. You're looking at a passage and you'd say, well, that's not either one here, right? Because in verse 2, says the angel of the Lord, but when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's God who is speaking. But part of my point is that this word doesn't indicate the nature of the person. It indicates what they do. So there is a there is a person here who is called the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. And he's also called the Lord. And he's called God. Who is that? And this, by the way, this isn't unique to this passage. You read through the Old Testament, there are other times where the angel of the Lord appears and he speaks as God. I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple. Back to Genesis chapter 16. And we're getting deeper into just a focus on this person because I think it's key in part to what Stephen is saying. Genesis chapter 16. Remember the story... Sarai doesn't have any children. She talks to Abram. Abram takes her maid, Hagar, thinking that Hagar is going to be the one to provide the child, and Sarai is going to somehow adopt this child. It will somehow be her child. That's, of course, not God's purpose, but Hagar conceives, and as she conceives, Sarai is angry at the treatment that Hagar gives to her, the contempt shown to her. The end of verse 6, it says, so Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. So the focus is Hagar here as she runs away from Abram and Sarai after being harshly treated. A woman who had sort of become Abraham's wife, who's now out in the desert. Look at verse 7. Says now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the mistress of my uh, the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, Notice this. It's the angel of the Lord who is saying this to her. I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now, as you study the Bible and look at the powers of angels, they can be very powerful. 
but do they have the power to give life and to build nations? Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Look at verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees, or El-Rohi. For she said, have I even remained here alive after seeing her? Uh, seeing him, rather. You see, she sees this one who she calls El-Rohi, and she's surprised that she's still alive after seeing him. Now, some might argue, well, Hagar's mistaken. She doesn't really understand she's talking to an angel. You know, Scripture corrects us when there's an angel in view and not God. That happens in Revelation where John falls down at the feet of an angel and the angel says, get up. If this is, if this is not an appropriate name, this angel should have said, no, I'm not God. But instead, not only was this name taken, but it's now in Scripture. So this messenger from the Lord is speaking to Hagar, and he is talking about the Lord, and yet he is the Lord. Now, does this fit with our theology? Does this fit with our understanding of who God is, that God has a messenger who is also God? Yes, we believe in a triune God. We believe that God is three persons, one God. And we certainly believe that God sent his son into this world as a messenger of the truth. But before he ever came in the flesh, he came to his people at times in their history. This is what we call Christ in the Old Testament. As he appears and he's involved. Turn over to Genesis 31. We're down a couple of generations. Jacob has married Leah and then Rachel. He's had his wages changed 10 times, and God, of course, has watched over this whole circumstance in Jacob's life and blessed him in spite of Laban. But that's a part of what the story is here in Genesis 31. Notice Jacob's own testimony to his wives. We'll start in verse 7. He says, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought, brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. In other words, Laban was trying to change the dynamics by changing the animals that Jacob would receive for his payment. And whenever Laban made a statement, okay, you'll get this kind of animal, then that was the animal that just was produced more. Jacob's wealth is increasing. Look at verse 9. It says, Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. 
Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up now your eyes and see all the, that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. Notice this, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Above Jacob, watching over his life, was the angel of God who's observing what Laban was doing, and he was blessing Jacob in spite of what Laban was trying to do. Let's keep going. Look at what the angel of God says in verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Who's talking? Well, again, there's that word angel, and it might trip us up if we're constantly thinking of those finite spirits. And in our culture, you know, they have wings and halos and all that. That's, that's really not what we should be thinking about when we see that word angel, especially in a context like this, where the very person who's speaking identifies himself as God. Nor should we think that God is an angel. He's not one of these created finite spirits. No, this is another passage in which the angel of God, he's called the angel of the Lord. He's called the angel of God's presence in Isaiah 63. The word messenger fits well because he is God and yet he speaks for God. In other words, this is God coming down, and in the context of Acts chapter 7, it's God who is calling Moses to go and deliver the people. And if you turn back to Acts chapter 7, who is this? Even Stephen, in the context here of Acts chapter 7, identifies who this is by mentioning in verse 31 that the one who's speaking out of the bush is the Lord, it's the voice of the Lord that comes out, and his self-identification in verse 32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So who is this? This is the messenger of God. He is the Lord. He's the God of the patriarchs. And verse 33, he is holy. Notice it says, but the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So what we're looking at, I believe, and I believe that scripture, comparing scripture with scripture bears this out. This is Christ in the Old Testament. This is the second person of the Trinity, the one who is the messenger of the Lord, who before he came in the flesh, was active in the lives of his people. And indeed, when he's calling a servant, a human being, to go and serve him to bring his people out of, out of Egypt, this is Christ himself calling one of his servants. And he is holy. He is set apart. John says it really was Christ who was on that throne in Isaiah to whom the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is Christ. Christ is holy. This is holy ground that Moses is standing on. He's got to take his shoes off because this is a sacred place. 
This is a place where he is to be worshipped. And yes, feared. And bowed down before. This is the Lord. This is God who's come down and he's meeting now. And he's calling one of his servants. And notice, following his direction to Moses regarding his holiness and commanding Moses to acknowledge his holiness, he then speaks of his goodness and his love, his compassion. And we'll have to close on this point. But as you look at verse 34, notice the love of God for his people. What brought him down from heaven to call a servant to reach out and take his people out of Egypt? It was oppression. He says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Now, we can think in terms of the sight of God, his knowledge of what's taking place with his people. Do you see a parallel there to what we just read about Jacob? See the parallel? On an individual level, God is seeing what Laban is doing to Jacob, and he's blessing Jacob in spite of it. On a national level, he sees what Egypt, what Pharaoh and the Egyptians are doing to the Israelites. He sees the bondage. He sees the oppression. He sees the persecution and know that he cares. He came to Hagar in the wilderness when she thinks she's forgotten. Who cares, she might have said. You know who cares? God cares. No, more specifically, Christ cares. Yes, the Father and the Spirit care, but I'm saying he came down personally and cared for her and blessed her. What does the scripture say? Cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Do you believe that? Little old me. The hurt that I'm experiencing now that I started to feel years ago and it just hasn't gone away because I can't erase that memory. You think God cares about that? Of course he cares. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief, the songwriter said. Not only does he care, does he see, he hears. And the word groans there is the inarticulate vocalizing on the part of his people under the burden of oppression that he hears. Not only does he hear their words, but he hears their groans. And he cares about that as well. And how does he respond? He responds in compassion. I have come down to rescue them. Now, God did that, of course, for that generation in Egypt. But there's a parallel here. We're going to look at the prophet like Moses. In fact, Stephen is laying the groundwork for that prophet like Moses, who is also rejected, but definitely called by God as a deliverer. Not only a deliverer from oppression and affliction of this life, but 
from sin and death and hell. That's what Jesus does, and that's who Jesus is. This man is called by God. He's called by Christ to go and rescue the people. And as Stephen proceeds, it's this very one called by God who's now going to be rejected. It's a strange thing that the one that God called to save his people would also be rejected and mistreated, and they would not listen to him. And if there's a lesson in this, by way of application, you need to listen to those who are speaking the word of God to you and telling you the word of God in truth. Don't reject it. Don't turn away from it. Certainly don't mistreat the one who's speaking the word of God to you. And if you're the one doing the speaking, if you're the one doing the preaching, no matter how many people, I can say this to Brother Chris, say no or I don't want to hear, just keep on going. Keep on going. You just keep on preaching the truth. You keep on proclaiming the gospel. Expect that rejection, expect the opposition, but know that God, if he has called you, if he's gifted you, if he's sent you, He's with you. And he's going to accomplish his purpose. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you, Lord, for showing us your love and compassion, your holiness. Thank you for showing us who Christ is. Thank you for calling us, Lord, to follow in his footsteps. And if we should follow and be rejected, we pray that we might not be discouraged or faint-hearted. Help us to rejoice and know that our Savior walked that path. And as we've looked at Stephen, he is about to. We trust, Lord, that these narratives in Scripture, these records are here for our encouragement, that you can not only give someone the words to speak in his dying moments, but the courage to say them. And we would ask for that same courage ourselves. I do ask, Lord, today, if there's someone who has yet to believe, someone who has not yet turned to Jesus Christ, Lord, would you open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, bring them to a place of repentance from their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And we pray Lord, for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.